0: I'll be reading from the book of Philippians, starting in chapter one, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It was a great week together until we started the drive home. Amelia and I had uh, spent some time at a friend's cabin up in Michigan, and it was just awesome. We kayaked, we hiked, we explored the area, we ate out, we relaxed on the dock, we did jigsaw puzzles, we sat around the fire at night listening to loons and cicadas and, we slept in late, it, it was relaxing, it was refreshing. And then we had to leave. Uh, has this ever happened to you? Um, you're getting ready to go home from a nice vacation and for some reason tempers get shorter and the annoyances rise to the surface and you just find it easier to get into a fight? Doesn't seem to happen as much for us on the way out of town but it sure happened for us this time leaving to come back home. Now, I don't remember between me and Amelia what was the source of the argument that we ended up in. I'm pretty sure Amelia remembers, and uh, she can fill you in on the details later. But in any case, by the time we were leaving in the car to come back home, we were both pretty keyed up and a little angry and frustrated with each other. Now, I happen to be the one driving, and generally, I'm a pretty good driver. And I will say that uh, as long as I have been a Christian, I have certainly never uh, been DUI. But I have been DWI, a driving while I rate. <laughs> and I was that day. Well, I was driving a little aggressively, and Amelia was getting more and more anxious about the way I was driving and letting me know that she didn't appreciate the way I was driving. Until finally it got to the point where I pulled over and I said, Fine, you want to drive, you go for it. And then I sulked my way over to the passenger seat and looked for my opportunity to criticize everything she was doing as she was driving. Not one of our finer moments. Now, there are some good parts of a seven-hour car trip. Namely, it gives you enough time to get your head screwed back on right, which we were able to do, thankfully. We apologized to each other, we confessed what we had done wrong, and by the time we got back home, we were all good. But still, the issue, the, I guess, challenge kind of remains for us Neither Amelia or I are good passengers for each other or for other people because we just seem to have this tendency to let the other person know, I do it differently. Why are you turning there? Why are you going that way? Turn your turn signal on. Speed up and pass this guy. No, that's the exit you want. Neither of us are very good at letting someone else drive let me ask you, do you think God is a good driver? I I don't mean physically, uh, obviously. Uh, What I'm getting at is, see, I was upset before I left because Amelia wasn't the way I wanted her to be. And things weren't going the way I wanted. And then I was upset that the way she was criticizing the way I was driving. And then I got to criticize the way she was driving. And I just had this idea in my head, you know, that if my circumstances were different, I'd be in a good mood, I'd I'd be a better person. It's not really my fault, It's maybe it's even God's fault, you know, for arranging things this way. It's sort of like Adam, you know, it's this woman you gave me. And if you think about it, uh, I could kind of convince myself that it's God's fault that I'm angry and upset and wound up and anxious. And honestly, it's not. I mean, it sounds pretty embarrassing and stupid when you put it that way. But that's where we end up sometimes, right? You know, last Sunday, Joey did a great job uh, taking us through this prayer of Paul uh, earlier in Philippians and helping us see that our destination determines our days. Where we're heading shapes what we build our lives around. But what happens when we try to head the right direction and everything blows up in our face? What happens when we think we're following God, we're sincerely trying to do the right thing, and nothing goes according to plan? Paul has been faithful in following Jesus. He's been preaching the gospel, and now he's in prison for preaching the gospel. Did Paul do something wrong? Is God doing something wrong i think one of our greatest challenges is to make sense of god's will and god's purposes in suffering in trial in difficulty in loss when things don't go the way we want right if you haven't already go ahead and turn in your bibles to philippians chapter 1 we're looking at verses 12 to 18 today. The Apostle Paul is in a hard trial. He's in chains for the gospel, he says. And remember, we read earlier in Philippians 1-7 that he's imprisoned for preaching Jesus Christ, and he doesn't know what's going to happen with that. And then later, towards the end of this chapter, Paul is going to tell these Christians that they should expect to suffer in some similar kind of way as they follow Jesus. And here in this passage, I think Paul is wanting to help us understand how we make sense of, how we respond to suffering and trial and difficulty. Now, Paul's immediate problem was prison. That's maybe not going to be the challenge for most of us. It might be constant pain. It might be physical limitations. It might be relational struggles, financial stresses, work or a boss environment that's just hard. It might be people taking advantage of you or taking credit for something that you did. It, It might be some kind of abuse or pain that you've suffered. It may just be looking at other people's lives and what other people have and saying, how come God is being good to them? And he's not being good to me that way. Sometimes life is just hard. It's a grind, like that image of a grindstone pressing down on grain and and crushing it up. And sometimes life feels that way. Sometimes it's hard just because of all we have to do while we're on our grind, while we're just earning our daily bread and going to school and working and dealing with dirty diapers and 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 getting through the day or the week or the semester what do we do how does god grow us in that grind because it's often in those difficult circumstances in the grind that god grows us and grows the gospel so that our lives would shine his light into the darkness Well, let's look at that in Philippians 1 together. The first thing we need to know is how to interpret what's going on in the grind of our lives. Look at verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So, in other words, remember, Paul is in prison for preaching the good news of Jesus. And and now he wants to reassure these fellow believers that not only have these chains that he's physically wearing not stopped God's plans. In fact, now they've become the very thing that God is using to advance his purposes. I mean, that, that's kind of amazing. I, I think the first thing Paul is saying is that I, I grow in the grind when I trust God's providence, when I, when I see his providence at work in my life. Now, providence just comes from that word provide It's a big fancy theological term that means God's preparation, His care, and His supervision that are necessary to achieve a desired future result. I mean, basically, guys, it means God's in control and He's making sure that everything that needs to happen happens for what He wants. That's providence. It's a reminder also that God's ways are not our ways, and his plans are not our plans, because I'm pretty sure that prison was not in Paul's plan. His plan, his desire, was, remember, I want to go to the ends of the known world and take the gospel, and instead he's in prison and on trial, and he may lose his life. But the amazing thing is, in that good desire, God says, no no, I don't want you to do that. Can I trust God in His no? That's the question Paul and all of us have to wrestle with. When I was about 10, I had appendicitis, but I I don't think I was until probably 10 and a half when my dad actually acknowledged that I had appendicitis. Now, I can't blame him because Interestingly, at the time, my mom was actually in the hospital herself for a surgery. And, and as a kid, I was kind of a picky eater, and I'd have upset stomachs, and my dad probably thought, oh, that's all this is, or maybe he's looking for sympathy, maybe he wants to go see his mom. So he tried Pepto-Bismol. That does not solve appendicitis. Then he did the dad's solution. He started pressing down on my abdomen. Does that hurt? Does that hurt? Yes, yes, that hurts, dad. Uh, parents just... Don't diagnose appendicitis by poking on your kid's abdomen. My dad finally did take me to the doctor who, yes, said I need to have my appendix out. This was not in my plans as a 10-year-old, right? Because that meant going to the hospital. It meant strange smells and bad food and that awkward gown with the embarrassing, you know, gap in the back and being away from family and being away from friends and getting needles poked into me and having someone cut me open and leave a five-inch scar on my belly. It does not seem like a good plan. I did not want that. Now, interestingly, in God's providence, we went through the same thing with our son Daniel when he was about 10 years old. He had appendicitis. And I think I did a better job than my dad at believing him. I'm pretty sure I didn't poke on his belly to make sure it, it hurt enough to be appendicitis. But I will admit I was a little salty about the whole thing in some ways because he got a half-inch incision on the inside of his leg and a flat-screen TV in his room with a game system attached to it. I mean, where was the game system when I was a kid? But even with the game system, neither of us wanted surgery. Neither of us wanted to go to the hospital. Neither of us wanted to go under anesthesia. Neither of us wanted to be cut open. Because it was hard to believe that experiencing pain and loneliness in a strange place could be a good plan. And yet we both had to trust our fathers that saying no to our plans was actually leading us to something better. And that my father was still a good father for taking me through that pain that I didn't want. See, here's the thing. I can sometimes end up interpreting God's character through my circumstances. Does that make sense? When life is going great, when everything's happy and pleasant and easy, then it's easy for me to believe that God is good and He's loving and He's involved and look at how He's blessing me. But then, when things are hard and difficult, when God says no, when He takes me in a direction I don't like, it's also easy to think that God is unkind, He's unloving, He's distant, He's bad. And I think what Paul is telling us is don't interpret God's character through your circumstances, interpret your circumstances from God's character. What do we know about this God that we love and serve? That He is good, that He is in control, that His purposes for us are ultimately good. I mean, that's the great promise and assurance that Paul writes in another letter. That in all things, God is working for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That's That's an awesome reassurance. But it's important we understand what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. He's not saying God is making all good things happen to those who love him. He's saying in everything that happens, God is working for the ultimate good of those who love him. That God has an ultimate good in mind that he is working out. Our growth and the expansion of the gospel and more people coming to know Jesus. And that's what we need to know. Because you were trying to be faithful to God. You were trying to obey. And and then life fell apart. It didn't work out the way that you had hoped. You were going to eat that last piece of cake, and then your brother ate it. You studied hard for that test, and you still got a bad grade. You loved someone that didn't love you back, and you were sure this was the person for you or someone you do love suffers painfully someone takes advantage of you someone lies about you someone hurts you or it's just the daily grind of dishes and diapers and demands that never end can i believe in all those things that god is working for my ultimate good if i love him have been called according to his purpose It's a promise that God is using not just triumphs, but tragedies and trials as well to accomplish something in us. So that we're not surprised that in the hardest circumstances, in our greatest disappointment, God could actually be using hard things, difficult things, things we don't like, for His glory and for our growth. Because that's the second thing that we come to see in this passage, that Trusting God's providence leads to growth. Now, the background is, remember, Paul had been arrested back in Jerusalem in Acts 23. A, A riot broke out because he was preaching the good news of Jesus' resurrection as our hope. And he's been in jail for two years there. Eventually, he appeals to his rights as a Roman citizen to have Caesar try his case. So they ship him off to Rome. Except on the way, he's shipwrecked, he spends 24 hours in the open sea, he finally lands on an island where he's bitten by a poisonous snake. I mean, some of you say that sounds like our last camping trip, right? Except Paul didn't have three preschoolers with him. He had it easy. By the time he writes Philippians, Paul is now facing what may be his own execution. And yet what's happened is he has grown closer to Jesus through all these trials. God has grown Paul in all these things. You go through hardship and suffering, and if you cling to Jesus and walk in obedience to Him, here's what happens. See, people begin to notice that there's something different about you. Look at verse 13. "'It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ.'" Now, what Paul is saying there, there's an interesting construction. He says, my chains apparent in Christ have become. And and most of our translations take it simply to mean that that my imprisonment is for Christ. And, And that's true. But he says his chains literally have become evident as being in Christ. That means for Paul, this imprisonment is part of what it means to be in Christ. To follow Jesus means to follow Him in a path of taking up a cross and denying ourselves and dying so that we would live. And Paul has grown closer to Jesus in that. And and he's going to talk more about that later in the chapter. Some Some of you know that, right? That you have relied on God's grace and help when you were at the end of your strength. You have known a fellowship, a a connection with Jesus because there was nobody else around. And and God met you there in in a special and a profound way. There is fellowship with Christ and suffering. And as Paul suffers, clinging to Christ, it changes him. It grows him. He's saying, Jesus is more precious to me than anything. If if imprisonment means having more of Jesus, I'll take the imprisonment because I want to be in Christ, even in these chains. Pastor Joey's going to have more on that in next week's passage and, and what that looks like, but I think Paul is raising a few questions for us. How precious is Christ to me What would I be willing to give up or suffer in order to have more of Jesus? Because Paul is saying, Jesus is worth it. There is no suffering that he takes me in that he does not carry me through. And then ultimately use in my life. There's no hardship that he's calling me to that is not worth enduring for his sake because Paul sees God's providence. He grows through this grind that he's experiencing. And then as that happens, the gospel also grows through Paul in the difficulty. Did you notice that too? Now Paul's arrest and imprisonment have and his reaction to all of it, his courage, his faith, his hope, his joy, his love and concern for others. I mean, he, remember if you read the book of Acts in this shipwreck, he's concerned for the soldiers that are imprisoning him. No, let me help you save yourselves. Don't be foolish. Trust me. All of that has given him unique opportunities to, to share the good news of Jesus. I mean, Did you catch this in verse 13? It's been known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. I mean, how, how crazy awesome is that, right? Like, who but God would take an enemy of Christians, turn him into a Christian, have him go spread the gospel around the known world, and then put him in a Roman prison... Like, take your A-plus superstar off of the field and bench him so that the people on the bench could hear the good news of Jesus. That's what God's doing in Paul's life. How else does this imperial bodyguard of Caesar hear about the gospel? How else does it even get to Caesar's household? Because later in the letter when Paul's sending his greetings from the church in Rome, he says, those in Caesar's household send their greetings. Because God has taken Paul into this dark, horrible place, now the gospel has gone through Paul into places that would never have been reached otherwise. But look what else is happening. It's not just the gospel is expanding out to to people that don't know it. Look what's happening inside the church. Most of the brothers, verse 14, have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are more bold to speak the word. Yeah, some are speaking preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Some are doing it out of love, knowing that I'm here for the defense of the Gospels. Some are proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition, thinking to afflict me. It's, it's sort of like, okay, if you can get this mental picture, oh, Paul's in prison, now's my chance to shine. Like, wow, that guy had a moral failing, so, so now I can be the, the popular preacher and people are going to flock to me, Right? Horrible motives. He's he's not saying they're preaching a wrong gospel. They're they're not perverting the truth, apparently. It's just they're doing it kind of selfishly. Like, wow, man, now everyone's gonna come to my church or everyone's gonna follow me because God took that guy out. God sidelined him. Horrible motives. Others are preaching out of good motives. Look at Paul. I mean, look at his courage. The man's in prison. He's preaching Christ to his to his guards. That makes If God can do that, man, I want to step up and be part of that and see God use my life and my circumstances. Look at what he says. What do I care? All I care is that the gospel is preached. Is, is that amazing? Is that amazing, right? That, that God could take a leader into suffering and trial and, and look like he's sidelining him and then that person gets used by God to expand the gospel in the very place of suffering and limitation and hardship. As long as I was at uh, Salem, Efree in St. Louis, Grace Poland had lived in a senior center. Uh, she'd moved there several years ago when she was no longer able to care for her own home. And then not many years after that, her vision got worse and her reflexes slowed down. She wasn't able to drive anymore. So she's basically stuck in this place, right? Her husband had died years ago, so she was widowed, or her kids didn't live nearby either. So it's a hard reality, right? And, and it would be easy, it'd be understandable in those circumstances to become kind of self-pitying or, or bitter or resentful, or you know, maybe you just check out, right? Like, uh, there's nothing left for me but jeopardy and bingo, Not that those are inherently wrong, but, I mean, life can be more than that. And it was for Grace. See, because Grace loved Jesus. And she said, look, this is where God has me. This is my life. So what Grace did is she would go into the skilled nursing unit at Hidden Lakes where she lived. And and she would go read the Bible to people who were in skilled nursing and sing hymns to them and, and pray with them. She led Bible studies in the retirement center she prayed regularly for the staff for the other residents there i mean grace poland's life was physical decline and limitation loneliness isolation grief and those are the very things in the very place that god used through her to pour the love and the truth and the goodness of jesus into other people's lives I'm going to be like Grace Poland when I grow up. Who knows what impact your trusting Jesus in the grind, trusting God's providence in the trials would have in other people's lives. Because that's what God is doing here. Do you see that? Because when Jesus gets hold of our hearts, we gladly endure trials for the sake of having more of Him and getting more of Him through us to other people. That's what Paul is getting at. God's providence leads to growth. Growth in us and growth of the gospel and then that growth leads to joy. The last thing here in, in verse 18. You see Paul's heart. What then? What about all this suffering, all this opposition, people preaching the gospel for wrong motives? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. I rejoice. If God has me in prison, and that means the gospel goes forth, and I get more of Jesus, I rejoice. Some are preaching out of jealousy, some are preaching out of malice. Fine, preach the gospel. I don't care. May I decrease so that Jesus would increase. Jesus is being celebrated. Jesus is being preached and worshipped. That makes my heart sing, Paul says. I live that I might know Him. All my joy is connected to Jesus, to His glory, to His fame, to His worship, to more people knowing Him. What is it that your heart Longs for? What is it that sparks joy in you? What does your heart ache for? What is it anchored to? Because if our joy, if our hearts are anchored to our ambitions, to our goals, to our plans, to our children, to our parents, to our marriages, to our relationships, to our careers, to our money, to anything in this world, they're all going to be shattered by suffering and trial and hardship because all of it will be shaken. But Paul has fixed his joy to the honor and the glory of the name of Jesus Christ and nothing, nothing can shake that or take that away from him or undermine it for him. No matter his circumstances, there's an opportunity for Paul to grow more in knowing Jesus and make him more known, and that's what makes him rejoice. You know, my, uh, my mom died a couple of years ago, and almost now, and uh, recently I ran across some reflections from a lady named Tracy Steele, an, an interior designer, who was reflecting on uh, her mom's own death uh, that I thought were really helpful. Here's here's what she wrote. Grief and loss are like negative space in a picture or a piece of art. Negative space from a design standpoint is is meant to draw our attention back to the positive space, to the focal point. You know, it, it looks like there's just desert and empty sky. And sometimes life can feel like that. Grief or loneliness or discouragement or hurts can just go on and on and on, and it just feels like that's all there is. That's the negative space, right? But God, she says, uses loss and grief. Like an artist, uses negative space to give us permission to pause, to reevaluate, and to draw our attention back to what is positive, what is alive. Sometimes we can get stuck seeing nothing but the desert and the barrenness. But there's actually life there. And the picture is designed in a way to draw our attention to that. Back to God. Back to the hope that we have in Him. Even though you may have suffered loss or grief or disappointment, you may be going through it right now that you did not desire or want, can God still be the focal point, the positive space in your life, so that you don't get stuck looking at the negative space? What are you trying to fill the negative space in your heart with? Don't let your disappointment become your identity, but but don't wish it away and, and don't waste it. That negative space can actually become The very place that God grows us and pours His comfort and life and hope into others, right? I mean, that's the promise of the gospel, that God comforts us with the comfort we ourselves have received so that we can comfort others in the trials they're going through. But the thing is, you only get the comfort when you go through the trial, right? I mean, that's what comfort is. It's hope and reassurance. In the hard times. And the only way you get that is by going through the hard times. And what that means is that the point of the hard times may be less about the hard times themselves than what God could do in you and through you. To pour His life and joy and hope and purpose into other people. Because as you do that, you now have a purpose in that pain. To point other people to the Savior who died and rose again, who conquered death and suffering and sorrow, so that we would have life and be able to give it to others. There was a bumper sticker that became popular in the Jesus movement of the 1970s. Jesus is my copilot. And then some clever person a few years later came up with kind of a response one. If Jesus is your co-pilot, switch seats. Right? God is a good driver. A much better driver than I am or Amelia, certainly. No, I didn't say that. God is a better driver than I am or ever will be or you will ever be of your life. He is good. He knows what he's doing, even even when it looks like he's about to drive your life into one of these gigantic Indianapolis potholes. Right, he's going to blow out a tire. He's going to wreck the alignment because I've got everything arranged the way I want it. Yeah, he may do that. He may rearrange everything in your life. But he's still a good driver. You're in good hands. When God is driving. God's providence guides me through the grind. It grows me through the grind, and then it leads the gospel to grow through me in others. As I look at Him, remind yourself that God is in charge and He is good. Grow close to Him as you trust in His providence, and and let Him grow you and grow Jesus through you to others. Let me pray for us. Oh Father, we bless you that Jesus is at work in every circumstance, in all our trials for the glory of his name. Help us to connect our hopes, not to our goals, not to our plans, not to our desires, but to the promise that your glory will cover the earth like the water covers the seas, Fill our hearts with delight whenever Jesus is celebrated and worshipped, whatever that takes in our lives. Give us grace that we can give up what we cannot keep, even our lives, to gain what we cannot lose. Eternal hope and lasting joy and endless communion with our Savior who gave all of Himself for us.